Did I frighten you? No? Maybe startle is a better word. If you were truly scared, your brow would be sopped with sweat, eyes dilated, heart racing, and flooded with despair for your life. Most unwelcome sensations. Or are they? Studies and human enterprise seem to suggest that bipeds kind of like being terror-stricken, sometimes, and under various specific conditions. You think I'm wrong? What about roller coasters, wingsuiting, swimming with sharks, cliff diving? Why do we like to be afraid? Well, consider the rapid pulse, heavy breathing, and throat lumping, along with the surge of adrenaline, endorphins, and dopamine when an individual faces their trepidation. And encountering fearful things with others brings groups of mortals closer together through the shared experience, especially in a controlled environment like a ride, haunted house, or spectral cinema. Because there's an out, testing the grounds of how much one can take before looking away. Curiosity of the unknown and the excitement of what's to be uncovered has been paramount to the evolution and survival of Homo sapiens, just needing to know what's beyond the horizon. Not to mention the sigh of relief and perhaps victory over a pal who had to shut their eyes. But everybody's discomposure is different. A Petco employee is less likely to be apprehensive of rats. A surgeon is likely desensitized to the sight of blood. And I pray that there are no pilots out there with vertigo. This is why I think there are so many subgenres of horror movies. You have the ones that are absent of gory psycho killers like Poltergeist, Paranormal Activity, The Others, The Blair Witch Project, Rosemary's Baby, and The Birds. Jaws has a bit more hemoglobin, yet most of the terror comes from not seeing the shark and instead hearing dun 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 which by the way was not its producer's embryonic vision director steven spielberg intended to use the shark nicknamed bruce a whole lot more but chronic mechanical failure threatened to put the production way behind schedule allowing serendipity to deliver razor's edge suspense in lieu of Hollywood special effects. This is more my style of unnerving celluloid, though I will fully admit that from ages 10 to 18, I was all about slasher pictures. You may recall in episode 40 of Scattered Curiosities, Decennial, I read my stories from age 10 starring Freddy Krueger. Because I never really found Freddy, Jason Voorhees, or Michael Myers to be all that petrifying. And consequent to recent reviewings of all three franchises, I realized that I was probably more interested in all of the gratuitous nudity these photo plays had to offer than character arc, plot, plausibility, or a satisfying denouement. The term splatter film is said to have been coined by director George Romero to explain the graphic violence in his 1978 zombified classic, Dawn of the Dead, which objectifies excess methods for wrecking the body with pain, a tactic criticized as exploitive violence to fill moments and features that lack good allegory and compelling empathetic principles. Also known as torture porn or gorno, movies like Hostel and Saw have zero appeal to me. Though ironically, I do have a soft spot in my heart for splatstick absurdly over-the-top grisly pictures like Evil Dead 1 and 2, Shaun of the Dead, 
and Dead Alive featuring a revenant-sparring priest who kicks ass for the Lord and a protagonist that exterminates a horde of brain-hungry biters with a lawnmower, producing a swimming pool's worth of vital fluids. But again, I don't find this scary, yet rather hilarious. Personally, there are only two movies specifically that freaked me out the first time I saw them and still give me the heebie-jeebies whenever they are on TV. The Exorcist and The Inceptive Pet Cemetery. Particularly, Rachel Creed's decrepit flashback sister Zelda and When Lewis Kisses Her Despite the Heavy Puss dripping from her demonic eye. As we approach my favorite fete, the second highest grossing holiday in America, I thought it fitting to delve into the roots of Holomas. I love Hallowmas, otherwise known as All Saints Tide Eve or Halloween. It's one of the rare occasions that is every bit as enjoyable in one's pupilage as their grown-up years. Just a different variety of joy. The unbridled merriment I felt as a suburban lad hunting for domiciles rich with full-size Snickers bars and dollar bills versus fun-sized ones which are not fun at all and twist-tied sandwich baggies full of pennies to fill up a pillowcase, not those stupid plastic pumpkin heads, with sweets is far more embedded in my memory banks than most of my childhood Christmases. And I have never not had excellent adventures as an adult on Halloween. I mean, living in New York City affords me the opportunity to participate in the highly acclaimed annual Greenwich Village Halloween Parade, which began in 1974 through the vision of a visage-making puppeteer named Ralph Lee. And I kind of hate parades, so that's saying something. The demarcation Halloween outlines a hallowed or holy evening and comes down to us from the Celtic festivities Colin Gaeth and Sawin, spelled like Sam Hain, lauded between October 31st and November 1st. The two were blended with the holy observance All Hallows Eve, subsequent to the Christianization of Ireland in the 5th century. A major part of this conviviality was souling, whereby impoverished plebeians would go house to house and receive soul cakes in exchange for a prayer to the umbre of those who donated by chanting, quote, Mercy all Christian souls for a soul cake, end quote. Scattered curiosity... Sawinophobia is the revulsion of the hues orange and black, the unofficial colors of the celebratory day portending autumn and death. Costumes started being worn because it was believed that at the end of the harvest season and the start of winter was an opportune instance for spirits, fairies, metaphysical entities, and departed personages to pass between our terrain and what lies beyond. The idea was that the cadaverous wandered the earth on All Saints' Day, and All Hallows' Eve is the last night ethereal beings can seek vengeance on those that wronged them before they pass on to the abutting microcosm. The living could evade apparitions by guising, as in disguise, and mumming, wearing a mask or dissimulation, 
so as not to be identified just in case you've wronged a person who was recently defunct or looked like somebody who did. Exhibiting the false front protected a person from these mystical creatures because they, quote, personify the old spirits of winter who demanded reward in exchange for good fortune, end quote. During Sawin, the general public would put out beneficence for specters to ensure that they and their livestock would make it through the cold season. And it was widely presupposed that the deceased returned to their homes to hang out with their loved ones, so those with a pulse would acquiesce by setting a place for the bereft of life at supper, followed by drinking and games. Rituals of All Hallowtide are mentioned in William Shakespeare's smash hit, The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Though just to be clear, the Bard's comedy was not a mummer's play, a folktale put on by thespian troops, mostly men, wantedly, of mummers, geysers, rhymers, pace-eggers, tip-tearers, galishins, solars, and wren boys whose faces were painted or covered up. Such delights date as far back as 1296, way before Shakespeare, and usually headlined a hero, villain, fool, the devil known as Johnny Jack, Father Christmas, and every now and then a dragon duking it out in a battle royale, after which all fallen actors get revived by a doctor who would then enjoin the audience for donations. By the early 1400s, there were laws prohibiting, quote, mumming, plays, interludes, or any other disguising with any feigned beards, colored visors, deformed or colored visages in any wise upon pain of imprisonment, end quote. A compelling chronicle of the jack-o'-lantern's origin involves a thief named Stingy Jack being pursued by townsfolk he had burgled when the Antichrist arrives to take the impish Jack to hell. Jack proposes a deal to the devil that would cause the absconded God-fearing congregation to violently turn on each other, whereby the beast would transmute into a coin with enough value to cover the cost of the goods stolen by Jack. And when Beelzebub morphs back from the currency into himself, the village will riot looking for it. Satan agrees to the scheme and deforms himself into a shiny monetary disc, which Jack then cleverly put inside of a crucifix-laced pocketbook and sealed, rendering Lucifer impotent. Until the Prince of Darkness agrees that if Jack lets him go, he will never claim the filcher's soul. And years later, when Jack finally died, he didn't travel towards the light of heaven or Abaddon and complained to Mephistopheles that he had no photons leading him through the afterlife. So, the archfiend tossed an everlasting ember of hellfire karma to Jack, who whittled a home out of a turnip to keep the fire burning while wandering limbo for a suitable eternal resting place, where he became known as Jack of the Lantern, whose flickering light is said to be able to identify vampires, which is why to this day, ground vegetable beacons are put out in front of homes to ward off the undead bloodsuckers, in addition to other unwanted Halloween banshees. 
Carving produce has been an anthropoid practice for over 10,000 years, and their use as lamps for at least 700. What conventionally started as hollowing out root vegetables in Ireland and Scotland evolved into the pumpkin, which is native to North America, and consequently softer, making it easier to insculpt. But long before Moppets were stabbing face holes into them, Washington Irving placed a pumpkin on the cranial-ridden horseman of his highly acclaimed Legend of Sleepy Hollow. The earliest recorded incident of pumpkin carving in America happened in 1837, but it was related to the harvest season as a whole, not specifically Halloween. That didn't arise for three decades. In 1866, the Daily News said, quote, The old-time custom of keeping up Halloween was not forgotten last night by the youngsters of the city. They had their maskings and their merrymakings and preambulated the streets after dark in a way which was no doubt amusing to themselves. There was a great sacrifice of pumpkins from which to make transparent heads and face lighted up by the unfailing two inches of a tallow candle, end quote. And a Kingston, Ontario newspaper reported the inceptive occurrence of guising in 1911 North America, drawing attention to, quote, parties of children dressed fantastically who went around to the farmhouses and cottages singing a song and begging for cakes apples, money, or anything good wives would give them, end quote. The customs found their way to the United States with the massive influx of Scottish and Irish immigrants who were incipient to proclaim it in their private communities. Ruth Edna Kelly, who lived in Lynn, Massachusetts, full of Irish and Scotsmen, penned the Book of Halloween in 1919, and wrote, quote, The taste in Halloween festivities now is to study old traditions and hold a scotch party using Burns' poem Halloween as a guide or to go souling as the English used. In short, no custom that was once honored at Halloween is out of fashion now. End quote. Such institutes of liveliness include trick-or-treating, masquerades, bonfires, carving jack-o'-lanterns, baking pumpkin seeds, apple bobbing called duking in Scotland, haunted habitations, hair-raising hayrides, creepy movies, and parades. Games of divination were also popular, where girls would drip wax from a burning candle into a bucket of cold water, and the shape that formed would signify the occupation of a hopeful lass's future husband. As I mentioned earlier, the commencing idea surrounding Halloween costumes was to dress as something shocking to intimidate or take on the aura of supernatural organisms. Lycanthropes, wraiths, skeletons, witches, vampires, succubi, and boogeymen. From the start, they were largely homemade with the help of makeup. However, by the 1930s, Mass-produced Halloween get-ups were available amid the growing popularity of trick-or-treating and were comprised of silver-screen matinee idols and oddities from theater, comics, radio, and literature. Though the concept came from Great Britain, where white cats are considered bad luck, trick-or-treat is entirely American. The petty threat was almost non-existent in Scotland, 
where juveniles usually had to sing or dance or tell a joke for their prize, saying something like, quote, help the Halloween party, end quote. This practice is still done today in St. Louis, Missouri and Des Moines, Iowa, where Halloween is labeled beggar's night and kids have to perform for their spoils. Trick or Treat became established in the United States in 1939. The trick being mischief or combination to befall homeowners that don't divvy up something to outrageously clad youths, and the treat should be pretty self-explanatory. Sugar rationing during World War I put a pause on Halloween until the struggle was resolved and might have disappeared forever were it not for It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, which is given credit for helping to make the holiday accessible again, along with the oft-quoted blockhead disappointment, I Gotta Rock. Scattered curiosity, some areas practice trunk or treat, a vast parking lot where parents decorate their cars in spine-chilling ways as whippersnappers go guising from trunk to trunk. It's basically a tailgating party for the Guardians, who delight in the convenient, danger-free solution for rural parts of the country where residents are located a half-mile away or more from one another. The most hated candies, according to a 2017 poll, are candy corn, Necco wafers, circus peanuts, Smarties, Good and Plenty, Tootsie Rolls, I can't believe that one, black licorice, and wax Coke bottles. Favorite candies of that poll are Reese's Peanut Butter Cups, Skittles, Twix, Snickers, Nerds, Kit Kats, and Sour Patch Kids. Although I think they overlooked my favorite candy, Butterfingers. And while Halloween in America was formerly intended for ankle biters, adults have taken the red letter day for themselves. Women, in particular, have utilized the festivity to turn out scantily revealing versions of any bedecking. Sexy cop, sexy nurse, sexy Dorothy from the Wizard of Oz, sexy Rainbow Bright, sexy Mr. Rogers just came out a few weeks ago, sexy hot dog, Mario brother, minion, whatever. Halloween put-ons are a huge business bringing in numbers around $2.5 billion annually for people facades and $330 million in pet ones. A study of the past 40 years revealed the top five costumes of each decade, resulting in Star Wars, Alf, Madonna, Jason Voorhees, and Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, dominating the 1980s, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Star Trek, Power Rangers, The Simpsons, and South Park, ruling the 90s, Harry Potter, The Joker, no, not Steve Miller, SpongeBob SquarePants, Spider-Man, and Britney Spears taking over the top of the millennium, and Harley Quinn, Wonder Woman, Avengers Heroes, Game of Thrones, and Frozen characters these past 10 years. But the classics never go out of style, and you are certain to find plenty of Draculas, Monsters of Frankensteins, Mummies, Black Cats, Pirates, Bat and Supermen, Ghosts, Princesses, Cowboys, and Witches on any given Hollow Moss. Scattered curiosity, the term witch is derived from wiki meaning wise woman. In fact, Halloween is the Wiccan New Year's. 
And while we associate a full moon with witches and other Halloween ambassadors, like werewolves in black cats, there have only been a handful of full moon Halloweens. 1925, 1944, 1955, 1974, and 2001. There will be one next year, 2020, followed by 2039, 2058, 2077, and 2096. Alluding back to the idea I presented in the intro that human beings enjoy controlled recreancy, commercial haunted houses are as old as 1915 England, peaking in popularity in 1970s America. Actual haunted dwellings, according to parapsychologists, are supposedly full of phantasms that died of tragic misfortunes, like suicide or murder, within the doomed structure in question. Paranormal investigators cite cold spots and creaking as telltale signs of the presence of ghosts, yet fail to highlight the fact that frigidity and crepitation are characteristics of most old homes, which are usually lacking efficient insulation, expounding the crisp areas, and are withered justifying rasp. Belief in the phenomenon is markedly due to the power of suggestion. If you are told an abode is cursed, you will likely look for reasons to confirm the assertion. Though some haunts can be attributed to toxicity, namely pesticides, formaldehyde, and carbon monoxide in the vicinity. In these circumstances, whole families living in a haunted homestead will complain of fatigue, headaches, hallucinations, and even death. The oldest talked-about pervaded villa was in Athens, Greece, where a philosopher by the name of Athenodorus had rented a home despite its mysterious reputation and claimed to have seen a ghost of an old man in chains, leading him to a portion of the courtyard where it suddenly disappeared. Athenodorus marked the vanishing point, had a magistrate dig on the breath the next day, and exhumed the bones of an old man wrapped in chains. Posterior to giving the skeleton a respectable burial, the phantom left the premises never to return. Other plagued literary establishments of note can be found in Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher, The House of Seven Gables by Nathaniel Hawthorne, The Turn of the Screw by Henry James, The House with a Clock in the Walls, John Bellairs, Salem's Lot and the Shining by Stephen King, and, of course, J. Anson's Amityville Horror. By rule of a 1991 appellate court, a seller of any such domicile must disclose the property's notoriety for being such, as it affects the value of the establishment. Speaking of bedeviled digs, how about the best Holomas praxis of the past 30 years? The Simpsons Annual Treehouse of Horror series, parodying monster and sci-fi classics like The Shining, King Kong, The Fly, Night of the Living Dead, Nightmare on Elm Street, and several Twilight Zone installments, including A Kind of Stopwatch, Living Doll, To Serve Man, Little Girl Lost, a small talent for war, and nightmare at 20,000 feet by use of three cleverly ghoulish vignettes. The animated institution originated in Bart's treehouse where he and his sister Lisa were exchanging eerie stories. 
it's the only one of the series actually set in the treehouse. The second season underlined bad dreams of Simpson family members, and the third season was Bart, Lisa, and Grandpa Simpson telling tales of antipathy at Bart's costume party. From then on, the cabal has just been three madcap tales of terror. Space aliens Kang and Kodos appear in every single one of them. My favorite being Citizen Kang, where the two embody presidential candidates Bill Clinton and Bob Dole in an impetuously accurate political light. A Simpsons rarity transpired with Treehouse of Horror 4's Twilight Zone parody, Terror at Five and a Half Feet, when Springfield Elementary's Uter Zorker became the only human cast member to be introduced and consequently killed on the Treehouse of Horror and then carry over to regular episodes ever after. This year's interlude, 2019, will be manifestation number 666 and has supposedly been the plan since the program debuted in 1989. Top Treehouse of Horror fan picks, The Shinning, Dial Z for Zombies, The Devil and Homer Simpson, Time and Punishment, Hungry Are the Damned, Clown Without Pity, Citizen Kang, If I Only Had a Brain, Bart Simpson's Dracula, and Starship Poopers. Lots of shows do Halloween-themed offshoots, and why wouldn't they? It is a circumstance in which writers, directors, actors, and rendering crews can reimagine plot lines, settings, and, of course, costumes. As Tim Burton once said, quote, For some of us, Halloween is every day. End quote. Some television Halloween specials of note are Benicula the Vampire Rabbit, Alvin and the Chipmunks, Trick or Treason, It's the Great Pumpkin, Charlie Brown, Bobby's World, Night of the Living Pumpkin, The Flintstones Meet Rockula and Frankenstone, Pound Puppies, Nightmare on Pound Street, Raggedy Ann and Andy in The Pumpkin Who Couldn't Smile, The Woody Woodpecker Show's Spookin' Annie, Johnny Bravo's Franken Bravo, Franken Weenie, Mr. Boogity, Boo to You Too, Winnie the Pooh, Doogie Howser M.D., Revenge of the Teenage Dead, The Dukes of Hazard, The Ghost of the General Lee, and The Hazardville Horror, and the octoctonous MacGyver's Ghost Ship, The Secret of Parker House, Halloween Nights, Nights with a K, and Lesson in Evil between 1987 and 1990. And South Park has always delivered on Halloween, from Pink Eye to Spooky Fish, Corn's Groovy Pirate Ghost Mystery to Hell on Earth 2006, and a nightmare on FaceTime. Such entertainment isn't for everybody, though. Some celebrate All Hallows' Eve by going to church, placing lit candles on graves, and abstaining from meat, so they eat potato pancakes, apples, and soul cakes. Catholically speaking, a saint, also known as a hallow, is an individual with abounding holiness. Catechism says anyone in heaven is a saint. Hence, the church does not make saints, only acknowledges them. To be canonized with the appellation, one must submit to an inquiry of the potential candidate's life. If the Congregation for the Causes of the Saints of the Holy See finds confirmation of at least two miracles posthumously, it will deem the person to be venerable 
before the ultimate classification of blessed. But in Protestantism, a saint is anyone who is a Christian. And this is actually a convenient transition into a pretty significant milestone for the Protestant Reformation that transpired on October 31st, 1517, when the German monk Martin Luther nailed his 95 Thesis, or the Disputation on the Power of Indulgences, to the door of the All Saints Church. Luther was a professor of moral theology who was against the church selling indulgences, forgiveness of sins, to finance the St. Peter's Basilica restoration in Rome. Martin challenged that only God could give absolution, and he pointed out that profligacy resulted in Christians not really repenting sins or feeling any remorse, and kept communities from giving to the poor so they could purchase intemperance, affording a more sinful lifestyle. They, quote, cheapen grace without requiring true repentance, end quote. A popular saying of the day was, quote, as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs, end quote. Luther questioned if the Pope has the power to relieve spirits from perdition, why not release all of them? This got talks of a Protestant Reformation going, which led to the notorious Eighty Years' War, or Dutch Revolution, that we covered in the pilot episode of Scattered Curiosities, Let's Go Dutch. Luther was charged with heresy and excommunicated from the Catholic Church. A century and a half later, October 31st became Reformation Day and is recognized annually in Electoral Saxony, Germany, Chile, the Dominican Republic, and El Salvador. But not quite before the Dutch Golden Age artist and master of lighting, Johannes Vermeer, was baptized in the Reformed Church on Halloween 1632. Only 34 of his 50 pieces have survived him, as the Sphinx of Delft travailed at a pace of about three paintings a year. You've likely heard of or seen some of them. The girl with the wine glass, the astronomer, the geographer, the procuress, a lady writing a letter, the super expensive ultramarine laid the milkmaid, and the girl with the pearl earring that hangs today in the Hague's Mortis House Museum of the Netherlands. Lots of scatter-worthy curiosities throughout the ages have developed on October 31st, the 304th day of the year, which, in 2011, became the day of 7 billion, when Earth's population reached the completely unsustainable number. And my name wouldn't not be Albert Einstein if I didn't talk about some of these global events. For starters... A few old-school Portuguese kings, Ferdinand I, the Handsome, and Edward the Eloquent were born on Halloween. Romulus Augustulus, a.k.a. Little Augustus, became the last Western Roman emperor on Halloween, who only ruled for one year, posterior to abdicating the capacity amid political pressure, and the longest-reigning Grand Duke of Tuscany, Cosimo III de' Medici, died on Halloween. Within his 53 years as top meatball, he placed legislation pertaining to harlotry by outlawing conjugal relations between Christians and Jews, punishable by a fee of 50 crowns for violation or castigation on the rack if such funds could not be raised. The mandate eventually persecuted faith-crossing wet nurses as well. 
a more prostitute-friendly figure that died on Halloween was American General Joseph Hooker, a.k.a. Fighting Joe, a veteran of the Seminole Wars, Mexican-American War, and a major general in the Union Army of the Potomac who was beaten by the smaller forces of Robert E. Lee at Chancellorsville, also called Lee's Perfect Battle. Known to drink, gamble, and womanize, Gals appointed him as the handsome captain. Hooker was revered by his soldiers for taking care of their needs. Food, camp provisions, sanitary hospital conditions, and, of course, a little TLC. It is widely believed that the word Hooker comes from his last name. The dames of dusk that draggled his troops about were tagged Hooker's Brigade. However, it should be noted that Hooker had been used with the same connotations for 20 years prior, referring to Corlier's Hook in Manhattan that was ripe full of seductive painted women. In addition to the previously mentioned Medici, other prominent archival figures whose last names end in I that have died on Halloween are escape artist Harry Houdini, the sole female Indian prime minister and daughter of the original Indira Gandhi, and Italian fantasy filmmaker Federico Fellini. Houdini had given a lecture at Montreal's McGill University regarding phony ontologism and invited some of the students to his Princess Theater dressing room, where the legendary virtuoso was sucker-punched by Jocelyn Gordon Whitehead, who had heard that the 52-year-old magician could withstand any blow to the stomach. Houdini died of a burst appendix. Indira Gandhi, no relation to Mahatma, was assassinated by two of her own Sikha bodyguards, resulting in New Delhi riots and the death of about 3,000 Sikhas. Her ascension was, in part, on the basis that the male leaders of India thought a young woman would be an easily manipulated puppet. They would come to find her quite a strong dignitary and agreed, quote, India is Indira, and Indira is India, end quote. Her administration saw equal pay for equal labor among men and women to be put in the Indian constitution, approved a nuclear program in response to China's development of the power, and tested hers in 1974 under the codename Smiling Buddha which was seen as an intimidating and provocative action to Pakistan. The day preceding her assassination, Indira said in a speech, quote, I am alive today. I may not be there tomorrow. I shall continue to serve until my last breath, and when I die, I can say that every drop of my blood will invigorate India and strengthen it. Even if I died in the service of the nation, I would be proud of it. Every drop of my blood will contribute to the growth of this nation and make it strong and dynamic. End quote. She was succeeded by her eldest son, Rajiv, who himself was assassinated by a suicide bomber. Federico Fellini's indicative oeuvres were La Dolce Vida, La Strada, Fellini's Casanova, Juliet of Spirits, and Eight and a Half, which has been ranked the 10th best film of all time. Never seen it. Federico attended law school at his parents' behest, yet there does not seem to be any evidence of him ever actually having gone to class. In 1943, he was evading the Italian draft and got lucky when an Allied airstrike on Bologna 
obliterated his official papers. Fellini stayed out of sight until Benito Mussolini, who had come to power on Halloween in 1922, was unseated. Federico died of a heart attack in 1993. His body of work inspired Martin Scorsese's Mean Streets, George Lucas's American Graffiti, Joel Schumacher's St. Elmo's Fire, as well as the careers of directors Stanley Kubrick, David Lynch, and Terry Gilliam. Clips from Fellini projects can be seen in the music video for R.E.M.'s Everybody Hurts. The alternative rock band actually has another connection to this chapter of the podcast via the opening track of their ninth studio album, Monster, What's the Frequency, Kenneth, and a well-known newscaster that was born on Halloween, journalist Dan Rather, who replaced Walter Cronkite's That's the Way It Is with That's Part of Our World Tonight, on CBS Evening News in 1981. Fast forward five years to when Dan Rather was attacked on Park Avenue, New York City by a guy who punched him off the pace and demanded to know, Kenneth, what is the frequency? Just as a second assailant swooped in and beat the reporter while continuing to inquire what the frequency was. Authorities didn't learn of his attacker's motive until a decade later when they finally caught William Tager, who believed that TV stations were sending signals into his brain, and he was obsessed with knowing upon which frequency they were operating. Tager brandished a knife and killed an NBC stagehand outside the Today Show studio, trying to force his way in. Scattered curiosity, NBC's Today Show correspondent Margaret Jane Pauley was also born on Halloween, along with another figure of television royalty who reaped the benefits of gracing 22 covers of TV Guide beaten only by Lucille Ball, Michael Landon, best known for Bonanza, Highway to Heaven, Little House on the Prairie, and most fitting to our topic today, 1957's I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Initially coupled with Invasion of the Saucer Men, espousing the promo, quote, We dare you to see the most amazing motion pictures of our time, end quote. Completed in just one week, it was the premier media to use I was a teenage dot 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 on a marquee in this way, and the inaugural of four teenage monster flicks produced by American International Pictures. The other three were I Was a Teenage Frankenstein, Blood of Dracula, and How to Make a Monster. While fairly received in the U.S., earning $2 million against the $82,000 it cost to shoot, the U.K. had this to say about it. Quote, A piece of old-fashioned and second-rate horror. The transformations are very badly done. The scientific background is shaky in the extreme. And the monster looks like anything but the usual idea of a werewolf. It all seems rather hard on poor Tony, who is quite a pleasant boy when he's himself. End quote. That same year, Michael Landon recorded the songs Give Me a Little Kiss and Be Patient With Me, and some of the pressed vinyls credited him as Teenage Werewolf instead of Michael Landon. In 1987, on Highway to Heaven, Landon poked fun at his early career with the episode I Was a Middle-Aged Werewolf, where his angelic Jonathan Smith contorts into a leviathan to demoralize a gang of adolescent bullies. MST3K's Satellite of Love crew riffed on the cinematograph in experiment number 809, 
And who could deny that Teen Wolf owes its existence to API? Give me a keg of beer. Scattered Curiosity, the Alicia Silverstone, Brittany Murphy, Paul Rudd vehicle, Clueless, was nearly titled, I Was a Teenage Teenager. And here's some more histoween. The years 1800 and 1828 are the only two occasions in America where the presidential polls opened on Halloween. In that era, states had a month of open voting, allowing for many glad-handing intimidations of bolstering lobbyists to crop up. Both elections resulted in the unseating of incumbent presidents, who happened to be related the one-term president, John Adams, and his son, John Quincy Adams. Nevada became the 36th state on Halloween as one of but two that joined during the Civil War. The other was West Virginia, which is why they are both designated as battle-born states. Some believe Abraham Lincoln admitted Nevada to the Union because of its rich silver deposits needed to fund his imbrued conflict, but by 1864, the North was poised to win the war, and what Lincoln really needed was votes for re-election. On Halloween 1913, the Cardinal National Memorial honoring the penny-faced president was dedicated as the main street across America. Running through 13 states, linking Times Square to Lincoln Park, San Francisco as part of the Good Roads movement, the Lincoln Highway, which was nearly christened the Coast to Coast Rock Highway, or even possibly the Ocean to Ocean Highway. Back then, it could take a month to travel the thing at 18 miles per hour, driving six hours a day, in sunlight only. The song God's Country, performed by Judy Garland and Mickey Rooney in MGM's Babes in Arms, starts, quote, Hey there, neighbor, going my way, east or west, on the Lincoln Highway, end quote, and is mentioned in Woody Guthrie's song, Hard Traveling. The Dust Bowl troubadour wrote about another historical Halloween misfortune that materialized in 1941 when a German U-boat sunk a naval destroyer in the vicinity of Iceland, making it the decisive U.S. naval ship to be torpedoed in World War II. Guthrie no doubt recorded Sinking of the Reuben James with his guitar branded This Machine Kills Fascists. Scatter curiosity, famous red fascist Joseph Stalin's body was moved from Lenin's mausoleum to de-Stalinize the Soviet Union on Halloween. Two decades earlier, Mount Rushmore, or the Shrine of Democracy, chiseled into Cougar Mountain, a.k.a. Slaughterhouse Mountain, a.k.a. Sugarloaf Mountain, a.k.a. Keystone Cliffs, symbolizing the nation's birth, growth, development, and preservation, with the faces of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, Abraham Lincoln, and Theodore Roosevelt, was completed by the son of Mason KKK member and first living artist to have a sculpture purchased by the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Gutzon Borglum. His son was named Lincoln Borglum. From the onset, the granite-based project was supposed to feature full-body renderings of the presidents, but would have added to the already over-budget price tag of $989,992.32. In 1937, there was buzz in Congress to add Susan B. Anthony to the mix, but a writer to the bill said that it would only fund the faces that had already been started. It took 14 years to finish. October 31, 1956's Suez Crisis, or Tripartite Aggression, saw the United Kingdom and France bomb Egypt 
into reopening the Suez Canal, which connects the Mediterranean and Red Sea via the Isthmus of Suez, a path far more preferred to going around South Africa's Cape of Good Hope. The Lockless Aqueduct was completed in 1869, but the United Kingdom and France owned it up until the 1956 incident because of Egypt's inability to pay the loans it took out to build the thing. The invasion was triggered when Egypt made nice with the Soviet Union and nationalized the waterway over to the Suez Canal Authority while simultaneously closing the conduit to Israeli ships. The contention lasted two months. France and the United Kingdom were humiliated when Dwight Eisenhower forced a withdrawal and ordered the choke point back to Egypt, the rudimentary sign that Britain was not as dominant as it used to be. At the time I am recording this, and remember I do these months in advance, the island nation is scheduled to leave the European Union on Halloween of this year, 2019. I wonder if English Otis John Keats, another Halloween suckling and contemporary of Percy Shelley, William Wordsworth, and Lord George Gordon Byron, would have written about it were he alive at the allotment. John's compositions were not considered exceptional until after his demise at age 25. Keats only wrote prose for six years and published for a mere four of them. Believe it or not, he was enrolled in medical school and nearly became a doctor, but once he got his apothecary's license, he decided to be a dilettante instead. A few of his favored pieces include Sleep in Poetry, Ode to a Nightingale, On First Looking into Chapman's Homer, Women, Wine, and Snuff, and To a Friend Who Sent Me Roses. On the issue of Flowers, in 1860, Juliet Crazy Daisy Gordon Lowe, spearhead of the Girl Scouts of America, was born. Her birthday, Halloween, is known as Founder's Day. Juliet met the founder of the Boy Scouts in 1911 and decided to adopt the organization for teaching girls knitting, map reading, camping, first aid, and caring for livestock. With the compiled American Girl Guidebook, How Girls Can Help Their Country. Girl Scouts of America was officially established June 10, 1915, and Juliet was the affiliation's lead-off president. During World War I, the Girl Scouts of America were canning perishable foods and volunteering at the Red Cross by knitting soldiers' clothes and making gauze. Lowe remained president until 1920, and died of breast cancer in 1927 at the age of 66. She was buried in her uniform with a note that read, quote, You are not only the first Girl Scout, but the best Girl Scout of them all. End quote. Juliette Lowe was added to the National Women's Hall of Fame in 1979. Another Halloween-born National Hall of Famer for Italian-American athletes was four-year Chicago Bears running back Brian Piccolo. Up until 1969, Caucasian and African-American athletes had to be segregated in hotels while on the road. When that policy ended, the owners paired teammates according to their position. Running back was the only slot with one black and one white player, so Brian Piccolo roomed with Gail Sayers. Starting the interracial bromance epitomized in the James Caan, Billy D. Williams 1971 made-for-TV movie, Brian's Song. Post-liminary to scoring a touchdown in the fourth quarter during a game in Atlanta a year prior, 
Piccolo didn't feel well and removed himself from the game. Something that had never been done before and scared the crap out of his team. Brian's cancer spread quickly. Gail Sayers proclaimed, quote, I love Brian Piccolo, and I'd love all of you to love him too. Tonight, when you hit your knees to pray, please ask God to love him too, end quote, when he accepted the George S. Hallis Award for Most Courageous Player. The Bears retired Brian Piccolo's number, 41, when he died. And that accolade's namesake, NFL founding member, coach, and owner of the Chicago Bears, George Papa Bear Hallis, died on Halloween, also of cancer. Hallis named his team the Chicago Bears so they could make sense of footballing at Wrigley Field, home of the Chicago Cubs, way back in 1921. Hallis not only owned the team, he coached, cavorted as both wide receiver and defensive end, sold tickets, ran the club, and took part in creating the T-Formation, which saw the Bears win the most lopsided margin of victory in NFL history against the Washington Redskins with a score of 73-0. They were the monsters of the midway. George Hallis only saw six losing seasons in his coaching career, and his six NFL championships has only been matched by Curly Lambeau of the Green Bay Packers and Bill Belichick of the New England Patriots. Hallis's Bears were headmost to practice every day, watch footage of opposing teams to discover spheres of weakness, broadcast games on the radio, and put a tarp on the field. George owned the consortium for 63 years and coached for 40 with 324 wins, the best in the franchise's history. GSH is emblazoned on contemporary Bears jersey sleeves to commemorate him. His number, 7, is also retired, and the Pro Football Hall of Fame resides on George Hallis Drive. He was born on another holiday, Groundhog's Day. The title of a film featuring its star's older brother as the mayor of Punxsutawney, Brian Doyle Murray, who was born on, you guessed it, Halloween, 1945. Brian pops up in a handful of Brother Bill's flicks, he was a co-writer and star on Caddyshack and appeared in The Razor's Edge, Scrooged, and Ghostbusters 2, in addition to a ton of billless ones, 16 Candles, Cabin Boy, Waiting for Guffman, As Good as It Gets, JFK, Wayne's World, National Lampoon's Vacation and Christmas Vacation, and portrayed the father of the Bubble Boy on Seinfeld. One of the most fitting Halloween birthdays has gotta be John Candy. I mean, his last name. A former member of Toronto's Second City and SCTV, where one of his praise portrayals was the outrageous 3D horror director, Dr. Tongue. Before doing impersonations of Jackie Gleason, Julia Child, Luciano Pavarotti, Orson Welles, and starring in movies like The Blues Brothers, Stripes, Splash, National Lampoon's Vacation, Spaceballs, and Uncle Buck, John was on Dr. Zonk and the Zunkins, as well as The Clown Murders. Candy died of a heart attack in Durango, Mexico at age 43 while shooting Wagons East. And he was actually supposed to be Louis Tully in Ghostbusters, but did not see eye-to-eye with director Ivan Reitman as to how to fulfill the role. So, it went to another SCTV favorite, Rick Moranis. Though Candy can be seen cheering on the Ghostbusters in Ray Parker Jr.'s music video of the title song. 
John was interested in percolating Ignatius J. Riley in a confederacy of dunces, Attuck in the incomparable Attuck, and Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle in a biopic about the star's life, but died before production could begin, and joined some other big-named and bodied stars, John Belushi, Sam Kinison, and Chris Farley, who also expressed interest in such presentations, all of whom died before they could. The album Chocolate and Cheese by Ween is dedicated to John Candy. Why? Because the band felt that Candy was overlooked by all the death attention going to Kurt Cobain in 1994. Very few songs are written explicitly for Halloween. Bobby Pickett and the Crypt Kickers' Monster Mash became the festival's unofficial anthem in 1962. But there are tons of other great songs that seem to fit Hollow Moss to a T, such as Thriller, Season of the Witch, Frankenstein, Godzilla, Enter Sandman, Werewolves of London, Dead Man's Party, Living Dead Girl, Don't Fear the Reaper, Bad Moon Rising, Black Magic Woman, Witchy Woman, Hell's Bells, Highway to Hell, Sympathy for the Devil, Nightmare on My Street, The Devil Went Down to Georgia, Running with the Devil, Shout at the Devil, Zombie, Bad Moon Rising, and... While he never had any particularly spooky rhymes, rapper and real estate guru Robert Matthew Van Winkle, a.k.a. Vanilla Ice, is another Halloween infant. Ice, ice, baby. to help us keep the curiosities coming please rate us on itunes soundcloud or your favorite podcast platform and don't forget to visit scatteredcuriosities.com for exclusive free downloads and to donate to the show